Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. This is the Starship Sofa. Everybody, welcome, hello and welcome to show 201. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello everyone, I hope everyone is fine and dandy. End of the month show, so we have some fantastic art by our resident art guru, Brian Thomas Woods. Check it out, our director of art there, Brian, actually got this one. He just had, Brian likes to have a bit of time to do his artwork, (laughs) he certainly didn't with this one. Brian, what can I say, you little beauty, you star, thank you so much. Check out Brian's artwork for... What This was one of the stories that was one of the nominees in the Hugo category this year. It was Jeffrey A. Landis's The Sultan of the Clouds. So do have a look out for that. And Brian, what can I say? Honestly, this that science fiction, man. That's what we like. So Brian, thank you so much. I put a link on. Check out Brian's site because Brian has done other pictures for Starships over. And like I say, he's a guy now that kind of goes out and ferrets out. The artwork as well, so Brian, top show, thank you so much. I'll tell you what's coming in today's show, we have Science News by Mr JJ Campanella. Main Fiction is part one of The Sultan of the Clouds by Jeffrey A. Landis, this Hugo-nominated story. Then we have an interview with Gareth Powell, a UK science fiction writer. Do look out for that and do look out for his Gareth's new book as well. Certainly worth looking out for. Then at the very end, we have a little promo for Journey Into Podcast. And actually, if you go on to that Journey Into Podcast, you'll, you'll hear I'm Mr. Larry Santuro reading the story as well. So all good things there. Let's kick off then straight away with our science news for the month. JJ Campanella, Jim Squire. Greetings and felicitations, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to this August 2008 science news update. Just kidding. Uh, That was a private joke to freak out Tony, who received the wrong sound file from me last month. This is really August 2011. I'm your host for this evening of merriment and amazing science, Jim Campanella. I've just returned from a major scientific conference. It was the yearly meeting of the American Society of Plant Biologists. And unlike that small meeting in Portlandia that I went to last year, this one had participation of about 2,000 people, as opposed to about 80. This is a world-class conference. It is one where, despite the appellation of American society, is international, where a great proportion of the members coming to speak are from Europe and Asia. It is also a conference that will take most scientists who are in the AAA division, to use a baseball analogy, and put them in their place, telling them why they are not in the major leagues. I listened to dozens of talks from world-class scientists. 
Now, I'm a good researcher, and I have a good many publications and some grants that support my hypothesis that I actually know what I'm doing, despite my doctoral advisor's surprise a couple of years ago when he came to visit my institution to give a seminar. He was surprised that the university had actually given me lab space and equipment and that I had actually made something of myself. However, I am not in the league of these scientists who gave the major seminars. They are not exactly the embodiment of Tony Stark, but they are all clever beyond belief and have multi-million dollar grants. Let me make an analogy. I have a friend, John, who is a very good guitarist, one of the best I've ever heard and way better than me. We went to a concert uh, a few months ago to hear an amazing fellow by the name of Harry Manx. This is a fellow who's a Brit from the Isle of Man who's probably one of the greatest guitarists on the face of the earth. After the concert, John, my not untalented friend, turned to me and in a combination of joy and sorrow said bluntly, listening to him makes you want to cut off your fingers and just throw away your guitar. He was that good and it makes you realize just how far you will never get. That was how I felt listening to the speakers at this conference. Joy at the science, but a bit of sorrow that no matter how good I am, I'm just not quite in their league. So let me tell you a bit about the most interesting things that I read or heard of the conference, which took place in beautiful Minneapolis, Minnesota. Not to denigrate Minneapolis, but it's not exactly Honolulu, Hawaii, which is where the last ASPB meeting I attended was. Let me put it this way. There were no outside distractions in Minneapolis. You are pretty much there to go to the meeting, and that is it. So, what exactly went on? Well, before I talk about any actual news, I have a bit of a rant. My rant has to do with adding the letters O-M-E, OM, to the end of words. A few years ago, maybe ten now, scientists came up with the word genome. Genome refers to all the genes in an organism. And if you are studying the genome, you are studying a sort of holistic genetics of that organism. The word obviously comes from sticking gene and ohm together, and it kind of made sense. The next word that evolved from that holistic idea was proteome. Proteomics is the study of all the proteins in an organism kind of at once, etc., etc. It has taken only 10 years for this nomenclature of adding ohms onto the end of words to indicate a holistic study to become simply absurd and enter into the land of Monty Python. Let me give you a few examples of the ohms that I heard or read about at the meeting. Ionome. That's all of the ions or all of the basic elements that are being studied in an organism. Transcriptome. Those are all of the RNA transcripts that are being studied all at once. Metabolome. Those are the, the metabolic processes or metabolic chemicals that are being studied. Lipidome. Those are, again, a holistic study of the fats or the lipids in an organism. This is one of my favorites. The, this is the first time I heard it this year was degradome. A degradome is the examination of the uh, breakdown products from particular pathways all at once, or how they degrade. The secretome, those are all of the secreted chemicals or enzymes or products that a cell would put out. 
the interactome. This is a kind of holistic study of how all of the different proteins or enzymes or chemicals interact in a cell. The glycome. This is a study of all of the sugars at once in an organism. I can keep going on like this, but I'm going to stop right there before the listener's brains explode. Yes, biologists have a bad tendency to take a good idea and just keep pushing it, sometimes to the point of silliness. I guess ohm fever just caught on because the newest trend in biology is a systems-wide approach. And unfortunately, a new nomenclature has not arisen. So I think that despite the annoying nature of the fad, we will be on the ohm bandwagon for quite a while yet. So my favorite speaker and probably one of the most interesting people at the meeting was Dr. Roger Hangarter from the University of Indiana. I had the distinction years ago when I first met him at a meeting, and I was a vapid graduate student, to mishear his name when my advisor introduced me. And I said, Pleased to meet you, Dr. Hambutter. I hope that nobody but me remembers that moment. Anyway, Dr. Hangarter is a quick and imaginative fellow who's the former president of the ASPB with an excellence in teaching award, so he's no slouch when it comes to science or communication. Dr. Hangarter spoke about chloroplast movement in plant cells. You may remember from high school biology that chloroplasts are the part of the plant cell that absorb light and make sugar to feed the cell. Photosynthesis. Chloroplast movements are light-directed responses that occur in a number of diverse plant groups, including algae, moss, ferns, uh, angiosperms, gymnosperms. In species that contain multiple chloroplasts per cell, exposure to dim light causes chloroplasts to accumulate along cell walls, and they orient perpendicular to the incident light. When the level of light is high, the chloroplasts migrate to the anticlinal walls, that is, parallel to the incident light. These movements are thought to provide important adjustments for maintaining maximal photosynthetic performance and uh, a light environment that's constantly changing in, in a forest or, or around any plant. Hangarter's group has identified a number of mutants that affect light-induced chloroplast movements in the Cress family model plant Arabidopsis. Using a mutant collection, Hangarter has identified several genes that are required for normal light-induced chloroplast movements. The mutants and genes his group have identified are providing new insights into the mechanisms by which uh, the actin cytoskeleton causes and regulates the movements, as well as new insights into the adaptive function of chloroplast movements to the physiology of plants. One of the most fascinating things that Hangarter discussed was his discovery of a protein called thrumin, which bundles together the actin protein fibers in cells. The protein thrumin appears to be vital to the process of actually moving the chloroplasts in the presence of light. When the protein is mutated, the chloroplasts stop their movement because they need to have the thrombin present. More interesting is that the thrombin protein is conserved into the animal kingdom for a similar purpose. There are mice called pirouetting mice, mutant mice, which turn in circles and fall down because they lack balance. They're also quite deaf. It turns out that these mice are deaf because they lack thrombin production in their hair cilia, in their cochlea of their ears, so they don't hear. They also have no balance because the hairs in their circular canals of their ears do not respond correctly. There is also a human form of genetic deafness that falls into the same category. 
The point of the story is that even in diverse species, a protein that has a very similar function of controlling how the bundles of the cytoskeleton come together can have a devastating effect if knocked out. It also shows how closely related all the different organisms on this earth are by their genetics, even plants and mammals. One odd phenomenon that I noticed at the conference was a proliferation of posters from a scientist who has decided that she really wanted to go to a plant biology meeting, even though her group is working with an animal. And that scientist is Dr. Karen Pelletru from the University of Maine. The animal is a sea slug, Elysia thoracica. I may have mentioned Elysia on the show before. Pelletru had at least four separate research posters that I saw extolling the virtues of studying this sea slug. Why talk about a sea slug at a plant conference? Well, this is no ordinary slug. Alicia chlorotica shares a unique endosymbiotic relationship with the chloroplasts of its algal food. After feeding, the chloroplasts alone are incorporated intracellularly into the epithelial cells of the animal gut, rendering the sea slug green and photosynthetic. Although the animal will still feed when given the opportunity, it can also be maintained for months on just CO2 and light alone, exhibiting net photosynthesis and biosynthesis of lipids. If you Google a photo of these little buggers, you will be amazed. They look like green leaves attached to a slug body. One poster went so far as to call them leaves that crawl, and the posters took various approaches to their interest in the little beast. One of those posters decided that Elysia is perfect for getting the public pumped up about plant life, presumably because the Elysia is apparently more active than your average philodendron. Pelletru's poster said, quote, Fostering enthusiasm and interest in photosynthesis in plants is at times challenging. However, we have found that the fascinating photosynthetic sea slug, Elysia chlorotica, can transform people's interest in and the teaching of basic principles in biology, especially photosynthesis. Dr. Jeffrey Davis from Pelletru's group was more interested in the hard science of how the symbiotic relationship between the sea slug host and algae was actually engendered. One of the things that Davis was able to do was develop a culture system for Alicia from eggs to help further understand the obligate nature of the symbiosis. He collected non-pigmented egg masses and fed baby slugs unicellular algae until they were able to feed on the more complex versions. And within one day of feeding on the alga, he found that elongation of the sea slug's juvenile body occurred and visible chloroplasts were retained in its digestive tract. Using this culturing method, the obligatory initial feeding was characterized along with the reversibility of the symbiosis. This was observed when animals were not allowed to feed for an adequate period of time, at least six days, immediately following metamorphosis. Anyway, I know it's not quite a plant, but it's still pretty amazing. One of my favorite posters was from Dr. Gertrude Koenigs-Dundet from El Paso College in Texas. She collaborated with a group from the University of Wisconsin to study torturing cactus. Well, okay, that's a bit of an exaggeration. Her group was studying, quote, pushing the survival of cacti to the extreme, unquote. Why cactus, and why push them anyway? Well, prickly pear cacti are some of the hardiest plants on the face of the earth that actually produce a crop. According to Dr. Koenigs-Duden, 
The search for food plants that can survive in extreme environments is not only of interest for agriculturalists on Earth, but also for space explorers. Complete novel aspects of plant physiology can be studied by examining the survival of plants under conditions that simulate the most basic needs for the survival of plants in an extraterrestrial colony. This group grew their cacti on a, quote, lunar regolith simulant, unquote. Although that sounds like something from a Philip K. Dick novel, that is a synthetic moon soil that was sometimes supplemented with pyrogenic carbon. So they planted the cacti in this regolith, and then they exposed the plants to extended day-night cycles and extremely reduced oxygen and carbon dioxide concentrations in the atmosphere. They found amazingly that the cacti could live at 3 pounds per square inch of oxygen, compared to a normal 14 PSI found in the desert, for up to 150 days. At the same time, these plants could survive a day-night cycle of 21 days of light in 7 days of dark. They put the plants in atmospheres also with very low levels of carbon dioxide, sort of the opposite atmosphere that we all live in now with increasingly high levels of carbon dioxide. Now, if you remember your basic plant biology, plants have to have oxygen because they respire like every other thing on Earth, but they also need carbon dioxide for photosynthesis, which is the process of making sugar from sunlight and water and CO2, which they absorb from the air. So when you're putting a plant in low CO2, you are essentially starving it because that's where it gets its carbon from. How did the cacti do? Well, when starved for CO2 in the air, but given a soil rich in carbon so that they had the chance to absorb the carbon from the soil, 30% of the cacti were able to survive for up to six weeks. That is actually pretty good, but they never mentioned if they gave the cacti no oxygen as well. Now, that would have been a pretty neat trick. If they starve the cacti for both CO2 and O2, I'm not sure how long those poor little things could have survived. This is really interesting work, but I suspect it will be a long time before you see cacti growing on the moon, or Mars for that matter. But I'm still fascinated with the idea. Not only are there researchers from universities at these conferences, there are also lots of uh, scientists from industry, like Monsanto and other places. One group was from the company J.R. Simplot. Simplot? Well, not entirely sure how you pronounce that. I'll just say Simplot. They had an interesting poster for anybody who plants potatoes or is interested in them. Dr. Michelle Kruker's group is trying to improve potato harvest yield. Now, potato is a vegetatively propagated crop that requires tuber seed pieces rather than actual seeds for planting. For those of you who are not gardeners, that means that you actually have to plant little tiny potatoes in order to get more potatoes. You don't plant potato seeds. The associated input costs are much higher than for any other major crop because each plant produces only about 12 tubers. In an effort to lower grower costs and increase the sustainability of producing potatoes, Kruger initiated a program to develop a transgenic variety of potato that yields at least 60 tubers per plant, so that's five-fold. They transformed a variety of potato called binchi with genetic constructs designed to increase or reduce the expression of one or several genes predicted to be involved in tuber set. That kind of experiment is what scientists in biology call a shotgun experiment. You aim and fire and hope that 
one of those little pellets hits your target. Well, they ended up with about 1,800 regenerated potato plants, which they analyzed for tuber set. The average increase in tubers per plant was about threefold, and several went so far as to have 10 to 14-fold more tubers than the untransformed controls. That means that in 10 years, when these plants go through all the USDA and FDA studies to ensure that they are safe for human consumption, that you may be able to get potatoes more cheaply, or at the very least, have a bigger yield in your garden. Simplet apparently is very interested in taters because they had another research poster from Dr. Hua Yan, which looked at boosting carotenoid pigments in potatoes. Carotenoids are those red-orange antioxidant pigments that you find in carrots and tomatoes. I didn't know this, but originally Peruvian potatoes, the original potatoes, where they actually evolved, had high levels of these pigments. But the pigments have inadvertently been removed during two centuries of plant breeding because apparently white potatoes were more attractive to breeders than red or orange potatoes. In an effort to restore and increase some of the health-promoting qualities of potatoes, the Simplet researchers transformed potatoes with the different plant genes involved in the biosynthesis or metabolism of carotenoids. Yes, another one of those shotgun experiments. The transgenic tubers that they harvested after three months displayed colors ranging from pale yellow to deep orange and contained up to 15-fold increased amounts of carotenoids, that is about 2,000 micrograms per 100 grams fresh weight. Those levels are about 57-fold higher than those of the popular white potatoes, ranger or Burbank russet potatoes. And again, we may even see these potatoes in 10 years after years of tests. Seeing that type of poster, I'm reminded of those concept cars that you see at auto shows. You look at them and you think, wow, that is such a cool car, and I cannot wait until it is available on the market and I can buy that car. And years pass, but the car is never made. Not to sound too much like a pessimist, but we may never see some of these breakthroughs commercially. Okay, I think I'm going to break off here because I could literally talk for hours on all the cool posters I saw or talks that I heard, and I don't want to overstay my welcome. So that's all for me for now, and as always, take care, stay away from omics of any kind, and I hope I've inspired some of you. Until next time, this is Jim Campanella. P.S. Okay, it's not quite that easy to get rid of me. I had to give this BPA update. Now, I'm frankly getting sick of this entire situation, but I figure that I owe it to everyone to keep all the news up to date. In the Journal of Environmental Science and Technology... It has been reported by Drs. Kuruntha Chalam Kanan and Chunyang Liao that paper money worldwide contains bisphenol A. Now, I should probably rephrase that. What they've discovered is that the paper money is actually contaminated, not that it actually is made with it. Now, the amounts of BPA on dollars, euros, rubles, yuans, and other currency are higher than in house dust but human intake from currency appears to be quite low. The scientists actually analyzed 156 pieces of paper money from 21 different countries and found that they all contain traces of BPA. The report notes, however, that, 
quote, estimated daily intake from paper currencies were tenfold lower than those reported from exposure due to dust ingestion in the U.S. The highest BPA levels were in paper money from Brazil, the Czech Republic, and Australia, while the lowest occurred in paper money from the Philippines, Thailand, and Vietnam. That left U.S. notes at about average, and apparently British notes as well. Kanan and Liao also found that the most likely source of BPA in the currency is the thermal paper used in cash register receipts. They showed that receipts can transfer BPA onto cash when placed next to it or when a receipt is touched before handling currency. Quote, although high levels of BPA were measured in some paper currencies, human exposure through skin absorption appears to be relatively minor, the article notes. It all makes sad and logical sense. Good night, everybody. James, thank you so much. Thank you very much, Goya. Next up is part one of Jeffrey A. Landers' story, The Sultan of the Clouds. I'll give you a little heads up for, because the first time we played Jeffrey A. Landis, Wikipedia says Jeffrey A. Landis, born May the 28th, 55, Detroit, Michigan, is an American scientist working for the National Aeronautics and Space Administration. What, what is that? Come on, tell us. On planetary exploration, interstellar propulsion, solar power, He's patented eight designs for solar cells. Go on, way to go there. What a clever guy this is. And given presentations and commentary on the possibility for interstellar travel. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> Jeffrey's my friend. I want to listen to those, those commentaries. This story, like I say, was up for a Hugo Award. It Unfortunately, it didn't win, but it was in the kind of the nominee list, so you can't get better than that. This is part one, and it is narrated by Jonathan Dans. Jonathan has done a, a couple of stories, and he's got some more in the bag for Starship Silver as well, so do look out for Jonathan's more work coming by Jonathan. Jonathan, what can I say? Fantastic. Thank you very much, Squire. So, the Starship Silver is very proud to present... The Sultan of the Clouds by Jeffrey A. Landis When Leah Hamakawa and I arrived at Riemann Orbital, there was a surprise waiting for Leah, a message. Not an electronic message on a link pad, but an actual physical envelope with Dr. Leah Hamakawa lettered on the outside in flowing handwriting. Leah slid the note from the envelope. The message was etched on a stiff sheet of some hard crystal that gleamed a brilliant translucent crimson. She looked at it, flexed it, ran a fingernail over it, and then held it to the light, turning it slightly. The edges caught the light and scattered it across the room in droplets of fire. Diamond, she said. Chromium impurities give it the red color, probably nitrogen for the blue. Charming. She handed it to me. Careful of the edges, Tinkerman. I don't doubt it might cut. I ran a finger carefully over one edge, but found that Leah's warning was unnecessary. Some sort of passivation treatment had been done to blunt the edge to keep it from cutting. The letters were limbed in blue, so sharply chiseled on the sheet that they seemed to rise from the card. The title read, Invitation from Carlos Fernando de la Croix Ortega de la Hoya y Nordwald Gruenbaum. In smaller letters it continued, We find your researches on the ecology of Mars to be of some interest. We would like to invite you to visit our residences at Hypatia at your convenience and talk. I didn't know the name Carlos Fernando, but the family Nordwald Gruenbaum needed no introduction the invitation had come from someone within the intimate family of the satrap of Venus. Transportation, the letter continued, would be provided. 
the satrap of Venus, one of the twenty old men, the lords and owners of the solar system, a man so rich that human standards of wealth no longer had any meaning. What could he want with Leah? I tried to remember what I knew about the Sultan of the Clouds, satrap of the fabled floating cities. It seemed very far away from everything I knew. The society, I thought I remembered, was said to be decadent and perverse, but I knew little more. The inhabitants of Venus kept to themselves. Riemann Station was ugly and functional, the interior made of a dark, anodized aluminum with a pebbled surface finish. There was a viewport in the lounge, and Leah had walked over to look out. She stood with her back to me, framed in darkness. Even in her rumpled ship suit, she was beautiful, and I wondered if I would ever find the clue to understanding her. As the orbital station rotated, the blue bubble of Earth slowly rose in front of her, a fragile and intricate sculpture of snow and cobalt, outlining her in a sapphire light. There's nothing for me down there, she said. I stood in silence, not sure if she even remembered I was there. In a voice barely louder than the silence, she said, I have no past. The silence was uncomfortable. I knew I should say something, but I was not sure what. I've never been to Venus, I said at last. I don't know anybody who has, Leah turned. I suppose the letter doesn't specifically say that I should come alone. Her tone was matter-of-fact, neither discouraging nor inviting. It was hardly enthusiastic, but it was better than no. I wondered if she actually liked me or just tolerated my presence. I decided it might be best not to ask. No use pressing on my luck. The transportation provided turned out to be the Suleiman, a fusion yacht. Suleiman was more than merely first class. It was excessively extravagant. It was larger than many ore transports, huge enough that any ordinary yacht could have easily fit within the most capacious of its recreation spheres. Each of its private cabins, and it had seven, was larger than an ordinary habitat module. Big ships commonly were slow ships, but Suleiman was an exception, equipped with an impressive amount of Delta V, and the transfer orbit to Venus was scheduled for a transit time well under that of any commercial transport ship. We were the only passengers. Despite its size, the ship had a crew of just three, captain and first and second pilot. The captain, with the shaven head and saffron robe of a Buddhist novice, greeted us on entry, and politely but firmly informed us that the crew were not answerable to orders of the passengers. We were to keep to the passenger section, and we would be delivered to Venus. Crew accommodations were separate from the passenger accommodations, and we should expect not to see or hear from the crew during the voyage. Fine, was the only comment Leah had. When the ship had received us and boosted into a fast Venus transfer orbit, Leah found the smallest of the private cabins and locked herself in it. Leah Halmakawa had been with the Pleiades Institute for twenty years. She had joined young when she was still a teenager, long before I'd ever met her, and I knew little of her life before then other than that she had been an orphan. The Institute was the only family she had. It seems to me sometimes that there are two Leahs. One Leah is shy and childlike, begging to be loved. The other Leah is cool and professional, who can hardly bear being touched, who hates, or perhaps disdains, people. Sometimes I wonder if she had been terribly hurt as a child. She never talks about growing up, never mentions her parents. I had asked her, once, and the only thing she said was that that is all behind her, long ago and far away. I never knew my position with her. Sometimes I almost think that she must love me, but cannot bring herself to say anything. Other times she is so casually thoughtless that I believe she never thinks of me as more than a technical assistant, indistinguishable from any other tech. Sometimes I wonder why she even bothers to allow me to hang around. I damn myself silently for being too cowardly to ask. While Leah had locked herself away, I explored the ship. 
Each cabin was spherical, with a single double-glassed octagonal viewport on the outer cabin wall. The cabins had every luxury imaginable, even hygiene facilities set in smaller adjoining spheres with booths that sprayed actual water through nozzles onto the occupant's body. Ten hours after boost, Leah had still not come out. I found another cabin and went to sleep. In two days I was bored. I had taken everything apart that could be taken apart, examined how it worked, and put it back together. Everything was in perfect condition. There was nothing for me to fix. But although I had not brought much with me, I brought a portable office. I called up a librarian agent and asked for history. In the beginning of the human expansion outward, transport into space had been ruinously expensive, and only governments and obscenely rich corporations could afford to do business in space. When the governments dropped out, a handful of rich men bought their assets. Most of them sold out again or went bankrupt. A few of them didn't. Some stayed on due to sheer stubbornness, some with the fervor of an ideological belief in human expansion, and some out of a cold-hearted calculation that there would be uncountable wealth in space, if only it could be tapped. When the technology was finally ready, the twenty families owned it all. Slowly, the frontier opened, and then the exodus began, first by the thousands, Baha'i fleeing religious persecution, deposed dictators and their sycophants looking to escape with looted treasuries, drug lords and their retinues looking to take their profits beyond the reach of governments or rivals. Then the exodus began by the millions, all colors of humanity scattering from the earth to start a new life in space. Splinter groups from the church of John the Avenger left the unforgiving mother church seeking their prophesied destiny, dissidents from the People's Republic of Malawi seeking freedom, vegetarian communes from Alaska seeking a new frontier, Mayans seeking to reestablish a Maya homeland, Libertarians seeking their free market paradise, communists seeking a place outside of history to mold the new communist man. Some of them died quickly, some slowly, but always there were more, a never-ending flood of dissidents, malcontents, and rebels, people willing to sign away anything for the promise of a new start. A few of them survived. A few of them thrived. A few of them grew. And every one of them had mortgaged their very balls to the twenty families for passage. Not one habitat in a hundred managed to buy its way out of debt, but the heirs of the twenty became richer than nations, richer than empires. The legendary war between the Nordwald Industrial Empire and the Gruenbaum family over solar system resources had ended when Patricia Gruenbaum sold out her controlling interests in the family business. Udo Nordwald, tyrant and patriarch of the Nordwald Industrial Empire, now Nordwald Gruenbaum, had no such plans to discard or even dilute his hard-battled wealth. He continued his consolidation of power with a merger by marriage of his only son, a boy not even out of his teens, with the shrewd and calculating heiress of La Jolla. His closest competitors gone, Udo retreated from the outer solar system, leaving the long expansion outward to others. He established corporate headquarters, a living quarters for workers, and his own personal dwelling in a place which was both central to the inner system and also a spot that nobody had ever before thought possible to colonize. He made his reputation by colonizing the planet casually called the solar system's hell planet, Venus. The planet below grew from a point of light into a gibbous white pearl, too bright to look at. The arriving interplanetary yacht shed its hyperbolic excess in a low pass through Venus's atmosphere, rebounded leisurely into high elliptical orbit, and then circularized into a two-hour parking orbit. Suleiman had an extravagant viewport, a single transparent pane four meters in diameter, and I floated in front of it, watching the transport bark glide up to meet us. 
I had thought Suleiman a large ship. The bark made it look like a miniature, a flattened cone with a rounded nose and absurdly tiny rocket engines at the base. It was shaped in the form of a typical planetary descent lifting body, but one that must have been over a kilometer long and at least as wide. It glided up to the Suleiman and docked with her like a pumpkin mating with a pea. The size I knew was deceiving. The bark was no more than a thin skin over a hollow shell made of vacuum foam titanium surrounding a vast empty chamber. It was designed not to land, but to float in the atmosphere. And to float, it required a huge volume and almost no weight. No ships ever landed on the surface of Venus. The epithet Hell was well chosen. The transfer bark, then, was more like a space-going dirigible than a spaceship, a vehicle as much at home floating in the clouds as floating in orbit. Even knowing that the vast bulk of the bark was little more substantial than vacuum, though, I found the effect intimidating. It didn't seem to make any impression on Leah. She had come out from her silent solitude when we approached Venus, but she barely glanced out the viewport in passing. It was often hard for me to guess what would attract her attention. Sometimes I had seen her spend an hour staring at a rock, apparently fascinated by a chunk of ordinary asteroidal chondrite, turning it over and examining it carefully from every possible angle. Other things, like a spaceship nearly as big as a city, she ignored as if they had no more importance than dirt. Bulky cargoes were carried in compartments in the hollow interior of the bark, but since there were just two of us descending to Venus, we were invited to sit up in the pilot's compartment, a transparent blister almost invisible at the front. The pilot was another yellow-robed Buddhist, was this a common sect for Venus pilots, I wondered? But this pilot was as talkative as Suleiman's pilot had been reclusive. As the bark undocked, a tether line stretched out between it and the station. The station lowered the bark toward the planet. While we were being lowered down the tether, the pilot pointed out every possible sight. A tiny communication satellite crawling across the sky like turbocharged ants, the pinkish flashes of lightning on the night hemisphere of the planet far below, the golden spider's web of a microwave power relay, at thirty kilometers, still talking, the pilot severed the tether, allowing the bark to drop free. The earth and moon, twin stars of blue and white, rose over the pearl of the horizon. Factory complexes were distantly visible in orbit, easy to spot by their flashing navigation beacons, and the transport barks docked to them, so far away that even the immense barks were shrunken to insignificance. We were starting to brush atmosphere now, and a feeling of weight returned, and increased, Suddenly we were pulling half a gravity of over-G. Without ever stopping talking, the pilot monk deftly rolled the bark inverted, and Venus was now over our heads, a featureless white ceiling to the universe. Nice view there, is it not? The pilot said. You get a great feel for the planet in this attitude. Not doing it for the view, though, nice as it is. I'm just getting that old hypersonic lift working for us, holding us down. These barks are rather a bit fragile, and can't take them in too fast, and have to play the atmosphere like a big bass fiddle. Wouldn't want us to bounce off the atmosphere now, would you? He didn't pause for answers to his questions. I wondered if he would have continued his travelogue even if we had not been there. The G level increased to about a standard, then steadied. The huge beast swept inverted through the atmosphere, trailing an ionized cloud behind it. The pilot slowed toward subsonic and then rolled the bark over again, skipping upward slightly into the exosphere to cool the glowing skin, then letting it dip back downward. The air thickened around us as we descended into the thin, featureless haze, and then we broke through the bottom of the haze into the clear air below it, and abruptly we were soaring above the endless sea of clouds. Clouds. 150 million square kilometers of clouds. A billion cubic kilometers of clouds.
In the ocean of clouds, the floating cities of Venus are not limited, like terrestrial cities, to two dimensions only, but can float up and down at the whim of the city masters, higher into the bright cold sunlight, down or toward the edges of the hot murky depths. Clouds. The bark sailed over cloud cathedrals and over cloud mountains, edges recomplicated with cauliflower fractals. We sailed past lairs filled with cloud monsters a kilometer tall, with arched necks of clouds stretching forward, threatening and blustering with cloud teeth, cloud-muscled bodies with clawed feet of flickering lightning. The bark was floating now, drifting downward at subsonic speed, trailing its own cloud contrail, which twisted behind us like a scrawl of illegible handwriting. Even the pilot, if not actually fallen silent, had at least slowed down his chatter, letting us soak in the glory of it. Quite something, isn't it? he said. The kingdom of the clouds. Drive some people batty with the immensity of it, or so they say. Cloud happy, they call it here. Never get tired of it myself. No view like the view from a bark to see the clouds. And to prove it, he banked the bark over into a slow turn, circling a cloud pillar that rose from deep down in the haze to tower thousands of meters above our heads. Quite a sight. Quite a sight, I repeated. The pilot monk rolled the bark back and then pointed forward and slightly to the right. There, see it? I didn't know what to see. What? There. I saw it now, a tiny point glistening in the distance. What is it? Hypatia, the jewel of the clouds. As we coasted closer, the city grew. It was an odd sight. The city was a dome, or rather, a dozen glistening domes melted haphazardly together, each one faceted with a million panels of glass. The domes were huge, the smallest nearly a kilometer across, and as the bark glided across the sky, the facets caught the sunlight and sparkled with reflected light. Below the domes, a slender pencil of rough black stretched down toward the cloud base like taffy, delicate as spun glass, terminating in an absurdly tiny bulb of rock that seemed far too small to counterbalance the domes. Beautiful, you think, yes? Like the wonderful jellyfishes of your blue planet's oceans. Can you believe that half a million people live there? The pilot brought us around the city in a grand sweep, showing off, not even bothering to talk, Inside the transparent domes, chains of lakes glittered in green ribbons between boulevards and delicate pavilions. At last he slowed to a stop and then slowly leaked atmosphere into the vacuum vessel that provided the buoyancy. The bark settled down gradually, wallowing from side to side now that the stability given by its forward momentum was gone. Now it floated slightly lower than the counterweight. The counterweight no longer looked small, but loomed above us, a rock the size of Gibraltar. Tiny flyers affixed tow ropes to hard points on the surface of the bark, and slowly we were winched into a hard dock. Welcome to Venus, said the monk. The surface of Venus is a place of crushing pressure and hellish temperature. Rise above it, though, and the pressure eases, the temperature cools. Fifty kilometers above the surface, at the base of the clouds, the temperature is tropical, and the pressure the same as Earth normal. Twenty kilometers above that, the air is thin and polar cold. Drifting between these two levels are the 10,000 floating cities of Venus. A balloon filled with oxygen and nitrogen will float in the heavy air of Venus, and balloons were exactly what the fabled domed cities were. Geodetic structures with struts of sintered graphite and skin of transparent polycarbonate synthesized from the atmosphere of Venus itself. Each kilometer diameter dome easily lifted a 100,000 tons of city. Even the clouds cooperated. The thin haze of the upper cloud deck served to filter the sunlight so that the intensity of the sun here was little more than the Earth's solar constant. Hypatia was not the largest of the floating cities, but it was certainly the richest, a city of helical buildings and golden domes, with huge open areas and elaborate gardens inside the dome of Hypatia.
The architects played every possible trick to make us forget that we were inside an enclosed volume. But we didn't see this part, the gardens and waterfalls, not at first. Leaving the bark, we entered a disembarking lounge below the city. For all that it featured plush chaise lounges, floors covered with genetically engineered pink grass, and priceless sculptures of iron and of jade, it was functional. A place to wait. It was large enough to hold a thousand people, but there was only one person in the lounge, a boy who was barely old enough to have entered his teens wearing a bathrobe and elaborately pleated yellow silk pants. He was slightly pudgy, with an agreeable but undistinguished round face. After the expense of our transport, I was surprised at finding only one person sent to await our arrival. The kid looked at Leah. Dr. Hamakawa? I'm pleased to meet you. Then he turned to me. Who the hell are you, he said. Who are you, I said. Where's our reception? The boy was chewing on something. He seemed about to spit it out and then thought better of it. He looked over at Leah. This guy is with you, Dr. Hamakawa? What's he do? This is David Tinkerman, Leah said. Technician. And when need be, pilot. Yes, he's with me. Tell him he might wish to learn some manners, the boy said. And who are you? I shot back. I don't think you answered the question. The not-quite-teenager looked at me with disdain, as if he wasn't sure he would even bother to talk to me. Then he said in a slow voice, as if talking to an idiot, I am Carlos Fernando Delacroix Ortega de la Hoya in Nordwald Gruenbaum. I own this station and everything on it. He had an annoying high voice on the edge of changing, but not yet there. Leah, however, didn't seem to notice his voice. Ah, she said, you are the scion of Nordwald Grunbaum, the ruler of Hypatia. The kid shook his head and frowned. No, he said, not the scion, not, not exactly. I am Nordwald Grunbaum. The smile made him look like a child again. It made him look likable. When he bowed, he was utterly charming. I, he said, am the Sultan of the Clouds. Carlos Fernando, as it turned out, had numerous servants indeed, once we had been greeted, he made a gesture, and an honor guard of twenty women in silken doublets came forward to escort us up. Before we entered the elevator, the guards circled around. At a word from Carlos Fernando, a package was brought forward. Carlos took it, and, as the guards watched, handed it to Leah. A gift, he said, to welcome you to my city. The box was simple and unadorned. Leah opened it. Inside the package was a large folio. She took it out. The book was bound and cracked, dark red leather, with no lettering. She flipped to the front. Giordano Bruno, she read, on the infinite universe and worlds. She smiled and riffled through the pages. A facsimile of the first English edition? I thought perhaps you might enjoy it. Charming. She placed it back in the box and tucked it under her arm. Thank you, she said. The elevator rose so smoothly it was difficult to believe it traversed two kilometers in a little under three minutes. The doors opened to brilliant noon sunlight. We were in the bubble city. The city was a fantasy of foam and air. Although it was enclosed in a dome, the bubble was so large that the walls nearly vanished into the air, and it seemed unencumbered. With the guards beside us, we walked through the city. Everywhere there were parks, some just a tiny patch of green surrounding a tree, some forest perched on wide tops of elongated stalks, with elegantly sculpted waterfalls cascading down to be caught in wide fountain basins. White pathways led upward through the air, suspended by cables from impossibly narrow beams, and all around us were sounds of rustling water and birdsong. At the end of the welcoming tour, I realized I had been imperceptibly, but effectively separated from Leah. Hey, I said, what happened to Dr. Hamakawa? The honor guard of women still surrounded me, but Leah, 
and the kid who was the heir of Nordwald Grunbaum had vanished. We're sorry, one of the women answered, one slightly taller, perhaps, than the others. I believe she has been taken to her suite to rest for a bit, since in a few hours she is to be greeted at the level of society. I should be with her. The woman looked at me calmly. We had no instructions to bring you. I don't believe you were invited. Excuse me, I said. I'd better find them. The woman stood back and gestured to the city. Walkways meandered in all directions, a three-dimensional maze. By all means, if you like, we were instructed that you were to have free run of the city. I nodded. Clearly, plans had been made with no room for me. How will I get in touch? I asked. What if I want to talk to Leah, to Dr. Hamakawa? They'll be able to find you. Don't worry. After a pause, she said, Shall we show you to your place to domicile? The building to which I was shown was one of a cluster that seemed suspended in the air by crisscrossed cables. It was larger than many houses. I was used to living in the cubbyholes of habitat modules, and the spaciousness of the accommodations startled me. Good evening, Mr. Tinkerman. The person greeting me was a tall Chinese man, perhaps fifty years of age. The woman next to him, I surmised, was his wife. She was quite a bit younger, in her early twenties. She was slightly overweight by the standards I was used to, but I had noticed that was common here. Behind her hid two children, their faces peeking out and then darting back again to safety. The man introduced himself as Truman Singh and his wife as Epiphany. The rest of the family will be about to meet you in a few hours, Mr. Tinkerman, he said, smiling. They are mostly working. We both work for His Excellency, Epiphany added. Carlos Fernando has asked our braid to house you. Don't hesitate to ask for anything you need. The cost will go against the Nordwald Grunbaum credit, which is, she smiled, quite unlimited here, as you might imagine. Do you do this often? I asked. House guests? Epiphany looked up at her husband. Not too often, she said. Not for His Excellency, anyway. It's not uncommon in the cities, though. There's a lot of visiting back and forth as one city or another drifts nearby, and everyone will put up visitors from time to time. You don't have hotels? She shook her head. We don't get many visitors from out planet. You said His Excellency, I said. That's Carlos Fernando? Tell me about him. Of course. What would you like to know? Does he really... I gestured at the city. Own all this, the whole planet? Yes, certainly the city, yes, and also no. How's that? He will own the city, yes, this one, and 5,000 others, but the planet? Maybe, maybe not. The Nordwald Grunbaum family does claim to own the planet, but in truth that claim means little. The claim may apply to the surface of the planet, but nobody owns the sky. The cities, though, yes, but of course he doesn't actually control them all personally. Well, of course not. I, I mean, hey, he's just a kid. He, he must have trustees or proxies or something, right? Indeed, until he reaches his majority. And then? Truman Singh shrugged. It is the Nordwald Grunbaum tradition, written into the first Nordwald's will. When he reaches his majority, it is personal property. There were, as I discovered, 11,708 cities floating in the atmosphere of Venus. Probably a few more, Truman Singh told me. Nobody keeps track, exactly. There are myths of cities that float low down, never rising above the lower cloud decks, forever hidden. You can't live that deep. It's too hot. But the stories say that the renegade cities have a technology that allows them to reject heat. He shrugged. Who knows? In any case of the known cities, the estate, to which Carlos Fernando was heir, owned or held shares or partial ownership of more than half. The Nordwald Gruenbaum entity has been a good owner, 
Truman said. I should say, they know that their employees could leave to another city if they had to, but they don't. And there's no friction? Oh, the independent cities, they all think that the Nordwall Grunbaums have too much power, he laughed. But there's not much they can do about it, eh? They could fight. Truman Singh reached out and tapped me lightly on the center of my forehead with his middle finger. That would not be wise. He paused and then said more slowly, We are an interconnected ecology here, the independents and the sultanate. We rely on each other. The independents could declare war, yes, but in the end, nobody would win. Yes, I said, yes, I see that. Of course, the floating cities are so fragile, a single break in the gas envelope. We are perhaps not as fragile as you think, Truman Singh replied. I should say you are used to the built worlds, but they are vacuum habitats, where a single blowout would be catastrophic. Here, you know, there is no pressure difference between the atmosphere outside and the life sphere inside. If there is a break, the gas equilibrates through the gap only very slowly. Even if we had a thousand broken panels, it would take weeks for the city to sink to the irrecoverable depths. And, of course, we do have safeguards. Many safeguards. He paused and then said, But, if there were a war, we are safe against ordinary hazards. You can have no fear of that. But against metastable bombs, well, that would not be good. No, I should say that would not be good at all. The next day I set out to find where Leah had been taken. But although everyone I met was unfailingly polite, I had little success in reaching her. At least I was beginning to learn my way around. The first thing I noticed about the city was the light. I was used to living in orbital habitats where soft, indirect light was provided by panels of white light diodes. In Hypatia City, brilliant Venus sunlight suffused through the interior. The next thing I noticed were the birds. Hypatia was filled with birds. Birds were common in orbital habitats, since parrots and cockatiels adapt well to the free-fall environment of space. But the volume of Hypatia was crowded with bright tropical birds, parrots and cockatoos and lorikeets, cardinals and chickadees and quetzals. More birds than I had names for, more birds than I had ever seen, a raucous orchestra of color and sound. The floating city had twelve main chambers, separated from one another by thin, transparent membranes with a multiplicity of passages, each chamber well lit and cheerful, each with a slightly different style. The quarters I had been assigned were in sector carbon, where individual living habitats were strung on cables like strings of iridescent pearls above a broad fenway of forest and grass. Within sector carbon, cable cars swung like pendulums on long strands, taking a traveler from platform to platform across the sector in giddy arcs. Carlos Fernando's chambers were in the highest, centermost bubble, up-city as it was called, a bubble dappled with colored light and shadow, where the architecture was fluted, minarets, and oriental domes. But I wasn't, as it seemed, allowed into this elite sphere. I didn't even learn where Leah had been given quarters. I found a balcony on a tower that looked out through the transparent canopy over the clouds. The cloudscape was just as magnificent as it had been the previous day, towering and slowly changing. The light was a rich golden color, and the sun, masked by a skein of feathery clouds, like a tracery of lace, was surrounded by a bronze halo. From the angle of the sun it was early afternoon, but there would be no sunset that day. The great wind circling the planet would not blow the city into the night side of Venus for another day. Of the 11,000 other cities, I could detect no trace. Looking outward, there was no indication that we were not alone in the vast cloudscape that stretched to infinity. But then, I thought, if the cities were scattered randomly, there would be little chance one would be nearby at any given time. Venus was a small planet as planets go, but large enough to swallow 10,000 cities, or even a 100 times that, without any visible crowding of the skies. 
I wished I knew what Leah thought of it. I missed Leah, for all that she sometimes didn't seem to even notice I was there. Our sojourn on Mars, brief as it had been, we had shared the same cubby. Perhaps that meant nothing to her, but it had been the very center of my life. I thought of her body, lithe and golden-skinned. Where was she? What was she doing? The park was a platform overgrown with Symbidian orchids, braced in the air by the great cables that transected the dome from the stanchion trusswork. This seemed a common architecture here, where even the ground beneath was suspended from the buoyancy of the air dome. I bounced my weight back and forth, testing the resonant frequency, and felt the platform move infinitesimally under me. Children here must be taught from an early age not to do that. A deliberate effort could build up destructive oscillation. I stopped bouncing and let the motion damp. When I returned, near the middle of the day, neither Truman nor Epiphany were there, and Truman's other wife, a woman named Triolet, met me. She was a woman perhaps in her sixties, with dark skin and deep gray eyes. She had been introduced to me the previous day, but in the confusion of meeting numerous people in what seemed to be a large extended family, I had not had a chance to really meet her yet. There were always a number of people around the Singh household, and I was confused as to how, or even if, they were related to my hosts. Now, talking to her, I realized that she, in fact, was the one who had control of the Singh household finances. The Singh family were farmers, I discovered, or farm managers. The flora in Hypatia was decorative or served to keep the air in the dome refreshed, but the real agriculture was in separate domes, floating at an altitude that was optimized for plant growth and had no inhabitants. Automated equipment did the work of sowing and irrigation and harvest. Truman and Epiphany Singh were operational engineers making those decisions that required a human input, watching that the robots kept on track and were doing the right things at the right times. And there was a message waiting for me, inviting me in the evening to attend a dinner with His Excellency, Carlos Fernando Delacroix Ortega de la Hoya y Nordwald Gruenbaum. Triolet helped me with my wardrobe, along with Epiphany, who had returned by the time I was ready to prepare. They both told me emphatically that my serviceable but well-worn jumpsuit was not appropriate attire. The gown Triolet selected was far gaudier than anything I would have chosen for myself, an electric shade of indigo, accented, with a wide, midnight black sash. Trust us, it will be suitable, Epiphany told me. Despite its bulk, it was light as a breath of air. All clothes here are light, Epiphany told me. Spider silk. Ah, I see, I said. Synthetic spider silk, strong and light, very practical. Synthetic? Epiphany asked and giggled. <laughs> no, not synthetic, it's real. The silk is actually woven by spiders? No, the whole garment is. At my puzzled look, she said, teams of spiders, they work together. Spiders. Well, they're natural weavers, you know, and easy to transport. I arrived at the banquet hall at the appointed time and found that the plasma arc blue gown that Epiphany had selected for me was the most conservative dress there. There were perhaps thirty people present, but Leah was clearly the center. She seemed happy with the attention, more animated than I'd recalled seeing her before. They're treating you well, I asked, when I finally made it through the crowd to her. Oh, indeed. I discovered I had nothing to say. I waited for her to ask about me, but she didn't. Where have they given you to stay? A habitat the next section over, she said. Sector Carbon. It's amazing. I've never seen so many birds. That's the sector I'm in, I said, but they didn't tell me where you were. Really? That's odd. She tapped up a map of the residential sector on a screen built into the diamond tabletop, and a three-dimensional image appeared to float inside the table. She rotated it and highlighted her habitat, 
and I realized that she was indeed adjacent, in a large habitat that was almost directly next to the complex I was staying in. It's a pretty amazing place, but mostly I've been here in the up-city. Have you talked to Carly much yet? He's a very clever kid, interested in everything, botany, physics, even engineering. Really, I said. I don't think they'll let me into the up-city. You're kidding. I'm sure they'll let you in. Hey, she called over to one of the guards. Say, is there any reason Tinkerman can't come up to the centrum? No, madam. If you want it, of course not. Great. See? No problem. And then the waiters directed me to my place at the far end of the table. The table was a thick slab of diamond, the faceted edges collecting and refracting rainbows of color. The top was as smooth and slippery as a sheet of ice. Concealed inside were small computer screens so that any of the diners who wished could call up graphics or data as needed during a conversation. The table was both art and engineering, practical and beautiful at the same time. Carlos Fernando sat at the end of the table. He seemed awkward and out of place in a chair slightly too large for him. Leah sat at his right, and an older woman, perhaps his mother, on his left. He was bouncing around in his chair, alternating between playing with the computer system in his table and sneaking glances over at Leah when he thought she wasn't paying attention to him. If she looked in his direction, he would go still for a moment, and his eyes would quickly dart away, and he would go back to staring at the graphics screen in front of him and fidgeting. The server brought a silver tray to Carlos Fernando. On it was something the size of a fist, hidden under a canopy of red silk. Carlos Fernando looked up, accepted it with a nod, and removed the cloth. There was a moment of silence as people looked over, curious. I strained to see it. It was a sparkling egg. The egg was cunningly wrought of diamond fibers of many colors, braided into intricate lacework resembling entwined Celtic knots. The twelve-year-old satrap of Venus picked it up and ran one finger over it delicately, barely brushing the surface, feeling the corrugations and relief on the surface. He held it for a moment, as if not quite sure what he should do with it, and then his hand darted over and put the egg on the plate in front of Leah. She looked up, puzzled. "'This is for you,' he said. The faintest hint of surprise passed through the other diners, almost sub-vocal, too soft to be heard. A moment later, the server set an egg in front of each of us. Our eggs, although decorated with an intricate filigree of finely painted lines of gold and pale verdigris, were ordinary eggs, goose eggs, perhaps." Carlos Fernando was fidgeting in his chair, half grinning, half biting his lip, looking down, looking around, looking everywhere except at the egg, or at Leah. "'What am I to do with this?' Leah asked. "'Why,' he said, "'perhaps you should open it up and eat it.' Leah picked up the diamond-laced egg and examined it, turned it over and rubbed one finger across the surface. Then, having found what she was looking for, she held it in two fingers and twisted. The diamond eggshell opened, and inside was a second egg an ordinary one. The kid smiled again and looked down at the egg in front of him. He picked up his spoon and cracked the shell, then spooned out the interior. At this signal, the others cracked their own eggs and began to eat. After a moment, Leah laid the decorative shell to one side and did the same. I watched her for a moment, and then cracked my own egg. It was, of course, excellent. <laughs> And 
there you go. That is part one of The Sultan of the Clouds. If you were interested, it was in the best novella category. And we actually played one of them stories as well. The Lady Who Plucked Red Flowers Beneath the Queen's Window by Rachel Swarsky. That was, you know, we played that one. That was in there. But it was the life cycle of software objects that actually won it by Ted Chang. But it was just if anyone was interested, that's what where this category came from, The Sultan of the Clouds. Do listen out for next week for part two of that story by Jeffrey A. Landis. Fantastic. Jonathan, thank you so much. Next we have a UK writer there who's kind of breaking on the scene. You know, like you kind of say this, breaking on the scene, but he's been there for a while there. Go on, Gareth. But, like I say, just new book coming out now. So I do hope you'll kind of check out Gareth's new book as well. Because there's, when you, you listen to us when I kind of, when I'm talking to, to Gareth as well, there's little bits of what Gareth's talking about just hooks you into one of Reedy's kind of stories. You know what I mean? And his novels. And he's in Starship Silver Volume 3 as well. So you can't get better than that. So we have Gareth Powell on the end of the line. Gareth, are you there, sir? I am, yes. Yeah. Yes, listen, thank you very much for coming on Starship Sova. And can I just say as well, you are in Starship Sova's Volume 3 as well with a story, Sunsets and Hamburgers. I, Gareth, thank you so much for that. Uh, my, absolutely my pleasure. It's one of, one of my personal favourites of the stories I've written, so I'm very glad that it's getting another outing. Well, listen, I mean, without giving too much away, you know, like ending-wise, you know, because obviously we want people to go over and check out the book when it comes out. What is, you know, because it's a, it's a title that just doesn't give anything away, Sunsets and Hamburgers. What's the story about then? Um, well, the story is uh, basically about an everyday chap who uh, whose uh, sort of interests involve um, sunsets and hamburgers and drinking bottled beer and and generally you know just hanging out um waking up several billion years in the future um to find out that he's died and been resurrected um for mysterious purposes by some robot doctors and the story is how he comes to terms with that and uh, how he struggles to find out why he's there you know, I love that because that just a few couple of sentences there, what you said, you know, you're thinking, oh, it's a, it's a guy about, you know, who enjoys sunsets and ham, and then that catch, that hook, you know what I mean? <laughs> he just wakes up billions of years in the future. Oh, fantastic. That, I'm chuffed to bits with that. But also, I hear as well, you've got a new book out as well, The Recollection. Is that right? That's right. Um, it was uh, launched at Forbidden Planet the other night. Um and uh, it's out from Solaris Books, um, so it should be available. I think understand Amazon are shipping it now, so it's uh, in all good bookshops, as they say, and uh, I think it's going to do good things. I'm extremely proud of it. What was it like for a, a book launch from a writer's point of view? Because I know, you know, you, I've sometimes walked in to see our bookshops, and, you know, in the kind of science fiction and, you know, the kind of fantasy sections of, I think it's Watson's, you sometimes see a writer sitting there, and there's no bugger there. Do you know what I mean? And they've got, <laughs> like, this table of books, and they're just sitting there, and you think, oh, man. I'm hoping, because I don't know the answer to this, I'm hoping that wasn't the case for you. No, I was, I was worried that might have been the case. But um, I, I set it all up on Facebook beforehand as an event, and it obviously had the backing of um, Forbidden Planet and Solaris as well, so I knew there would be a few people there. And it, it took place at 6 o'clock in the evening, so just as the short store was shutting, really. Um, and then it, it kind of a, a crowd came. I did a little a reading and a, a Q&A session, um, and then and they all lined up to have 
have uh, their copies of the book signed. Uh, it was quite fun. It was uh, um, the, the the staff at Forbidden Planet were were amazing, um, really helpful, really friendly, and appreciative. Um, and they're they're going to have a table of signed books uh, sitting in the window for the next uh, week or so, I think. And uh, it was a lot of fun. And there was a just happened to be a pub next door, so we all uh, <laughs> adjourned next door and. Uh, had something to eat and a, a few celebratory drinks. It was a, a very good evening. So, am I right? In th- this is a novel. This is not like a collection of short stories, or is it a collection? No, this is a novel. This is a, a full-on eighty thousand words of um, high-octane space opera. Go on, give us a little bit about what it's about, then, Gareth. Um, without giving too much away, um, the main character is a taxi driver and failed artist who lives in London who's secretly in love with his brother's wife. Um, and this comes out in the first chapter, and the brother finds out, and they have a little um, an energetic discussion, which ends up with Ed kneeling in an underground station with a police marksman with a gun to his head, and his brother falling into a mysterious purple alien portal that appears at the bottom of the escalator. And the rest of the book is um, how Ed and his brother's wife um, travel through these portals trying to recover his brother and find out what happened to him. While at the same time, 400 years in the future, there's a, um, an interstellar trader called Catherine Abdulov, and uh, she's been thrown out of her family for consorting with a, a gentleman from another trading family. And um, she's trying to win back the trust of her family by taking a perilous journey to a distant planet to win a trade contract. And somehow um, these two stories become intertwined and um, it involves all sorts of zombies and velociraptors and, and all sorts of great stuff. You know what, I, and it's just like, I guess, looking at the, you know, listening to what you're talking about, your sunsets one. Do you like to start off a story very very normal, very kind of plain, and then just take it into totally just magical places? Or do some of your stories and your novels kind of just kick straight in? Um, some of them kick straight in, but um, it's it's funny because the majority of the short stories I've written have been near future, whereas the two novels I've written have both been space opera. So it's um, there's been a bit of a divide there, but what what I intentionally set out to do with the recollection was to i had the space opera story but i wanted to put some uh, modern day characters into it to kind of uh to, to give the reader a somebody to identify with and also that whole what would happen if i was suddenly zapped 400 years into the future kind of vibe so just having a um, a taxi driver from london just chucked into a space opera setting. I just thought, you know, you can't resist that. <laughs> I like it as well where you see, like, the, the portal at the bottom of the escalator. Do you know what I mean? That's just yeah. so very British <laughs> as well. Do you know what I mean? I think that's lush. What, I mean, you say, like, 80,000 words. Does this, because I, I always like to get this question in, does this writing business for you, is it an, an easy thing or is it just a horrible thing that, you know, when you actually are writing, is it is it pretty hard for you to write? Or can you just, the stories and write, the actual process of writing come natural? Um, it's something I've always done. Um, however, 
<clears throat> I, I find coming up with the idea and getting started is the hardest part. Um, but once I've started, it, it flows pretty strongly. Um, it, it took me uh, about a year to write the first 20,000 words of the recollection on and off. But then as soon as Solaris commissioned it, um, I, I finished the the remaining 60, 65,000 words in, in about three months. So it's once it's going and once I know where, where I'm going, it, it, it kind of rattles off quite quickly. But then I have fallow periods in between when I'm not writing anything. So was that your plan to try and you know, like write a few, a few chapters of it, send it off to a few publishers and just hope that someone says, yep, carry on with it? Uh, it wasn't even that well thought out, to be honest. Um, it was a couple of years ago. I, I was off to Eastercon at Heathrow and um, I thought... Uh, well, I'm going to be meeting lots of uh, publishers and editors. I better have uh, better have something to sell them. So I sat down and typed this 5,000 word outline off the top of my head for this book, and took it along and and, and showed it to a few people. And um, a, cu- a couple were interested in reading more, and and you know it snowballed from there. And eventually, Solaris decided to commission it. So it's very much not how things are usually done. I, I believe uh, you usually have to have finished writing a book before you can sell it. But um, they were very accommodating, and based on the strength of my first couple of books, they they were willing to commission it on the basis of the synopsis and the first three chapters. So. Will it? Um, is it going to go on Kindle? Because I'm a bit of a Kindle fan now. You know, see. So I believe it is. Yes, it's um, it's not been released on Kindle yet. Um, the official launch date in the states is the thirtieth, um, but I believe it will be on in the next week or so. Um, my publisher tried to explain it to me something to do with American launch dates being on the last Monday after a full moon or something. Um, <laughs> so, so for some for some some reason it will be it will be out slightly after the print print version, but it should be on there soon. I'm, I'm looking forward to. Seeing how it does as an electronic book. Um, I was just going to ask you that. What What are your not say your preferences, but it must be a good thing for you. You know, this kind of boom in electronic format. You know, taking off. It's like another avenue for you. Is that right? Yes, I, I think it's great. Um, I'm I'm looking forward to getting hold of a Kindle myself. I love printed books. Um, I've got a whole library at home of just shelves groaning with old sci-fi paperbacks and and classic books and stuff. But um, I, I just think the possibilities for electronic books are, are immense. And, and it seems people seem to be more excited by books and reading more now that they can get them on their latest gadget or on their phone or what have you. So I think it's it's tremendous for readers and it's tremendous for writers, but um, it's also going to cause some problems in terms of piracy and a different model. And What I'm finding, you know, with the kind of say, the piracy side of it, it's it's that in in some ways does help. You know what I mean. The more you kind of people get you get your work and know about you. Do you know what I mean? I don't know if that's how you feel or not, or you're just maybe scared. You know, you do kind of lose revenue, but the more people get your work, then that it's bringing attra- attraction to you and your site. Is that? Do you ever think like that? Absolutely. Um, I was at a dinner party last night talking um, to some friends, and they were asking, you know what do you feel about piracy? I mean, have, have your books ever been ripped off? And I said, yes, I, I've, I've come, 
you know, come across my books on various torrent sites and what have you and seen that, you know, two, 2,000 people have downloaded this file and, and 4,000 people have downloaded that file. And I, at the end of the day, you have to think, well, that's 6,000 people who potentially read my book. So, you know, you never know. They, 6,000 people who might buy the next one or might recommend me to their friends if, if they enjoyed it. So while it's it would be nice to have... Um, the six thousand seals. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It would it it would be fantastic. Um, and you know, as I'm, you know, uh, struggling in my garret to make a living from this, it's it's slightly galling in that respect that someone's just you know ripped off um, potential earnings from me. But at the same time, you know, the goal of this is to get my work out there and to get people reading it. So you just have to take a quite philosophical attitude, I think. Is Gareth? I'm not too sure about this. Your answer: to This are you f- full time writer? This is it. This is all you do. Or have you got a day job? Um, I I spent sort of ten years working forty hour weeks in software marketing, um, and for one reason or another, that came to an end in two thousand and eight with the recession. So uh, from then, I, I decided to give a bash at freelancing. So um, I work two days a week as a PR manager for a disabled children's charity um, locally, just getting them in the newspaper and helping them raise their profile. And then the other um, three days of the week, I um, do freelance work. So I, I've got something I'll be doing today, for instance, writing brochures for um, sheltered housing uh, companies. I've got a, an agency in Bristol, a creative agency who put a lot, quite a bit of work my way. And I do um, reviews, CDs and do interviews for Acoustic Magazine. Um, and just generally, you know, dribs and drabs here and there and then try and fit in fiction around that and around uh, sort of being primary parent to my two girls and taking them to school and picking them up and doing all that sort of thing. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's kind of like I feel like I've got about five different jobs. But <laughs> Going on from that then, what's the, the UK market like? You know, the, the, the science fiction market, the scene, you know, is it kind of a bit of a vibrant thing at the minute? Because I'm just really going back from, say, a couple of years, you know, when everyone was talking about Alistair Reynolds and his, you know, 10-book mega deal. Is yeah. Is it a good place to be at the minute you know writing in the uk is there kind of money there from publishers and everything like that or is it i guess the world over you know it, it's writing and not struggling um i think creatively it is a very vibrant scene at the moment i think there's a generation of writers coming up jason sanford's alette de bodard and adam christopher who are coming up through interzone and coming up getting their first book deals with publishers like angry robot and solaris at the moment so while not raking in tons of money from those deals, they're still very exciting young writers and they're coming through. And I think in the next few years, we're going to see a lot more from them. And, and turning the kind of the interview a little bit now to a, a sad side, Colin Harvey, another UK writer, just died, I think, was was it last week or not too long ago? Now, I never actually knew any of Colin's work, but I'd, I'd going on your blog, were you a friend of Colin Harvey's? Did you know the right there personally i did yes um, i met colin five or six years ago um and uh we, we were part of a group who met up in bristol once a month for a, a beer and a moan 
uh, about writing. So um, I've been to lots of conventions with him and um, done a couple of events with him. So yeah, it was a very sad loss. It was it was a, a, a shock because um, he, he obviously wasn't that much older than me. Um, and uh, went to his funeral last Friday, which was which was a very moving affair. So, but yeah, it was a very sad loss to to the UK scene. And and judging by the sort of outpouring of messages on his Facebook site. Um, he he obviously had a great influence and touched a great many people, both in America and in the UK. Yes, and just see thoughts go out to Colin Harvey's family and friends. You know what? A, what a, like you see, you're seeing it. You get these messages on Twitter sometimes. You know, and Colin didn't actually look that old. Do you know what I mean? And you know, when you kind of see his Twitter picture and that, you think, "Wow, that's just you know, it's come out of the blue." That what a shock. Absolutely, it was, it was a complete shock to everybody. Um, and as I say, I, I think he he was only um, fifty, so it was quite a quite a surprise to us all. So, Gareth, what's next then? Apart from you know appearing in the fantastic Starship Sova Stories Volume Three, do you know what I mean? <laughs> you know, I yeah. mean, you can't get better than that. You're in highlights of your year, but what <laughs> else is is planned for you? Oh, I've got um, got several projects on the on the uh, on the back burner at the moment. I'm um, waiting for the go ahead for Solar from Solaris uh, for a couple of sequels to the Recollection, um, and also got uh, I've got my agent um, Sharon Ring as well. We're discussing different angles of attack on various projects, uh, novels. Um, hopefully, there should be ebook versions of my first novel. Silver Sands and my first short story collection, The Last Reef, um, coming out next year from a publisher who I won't name just yet because nothing's been officially signed. But hopefully they'll be out, so that'll breathe new new life into those books because they originally only had quite small print runs because they were from independent publishers, Pendragon and Elastic Press. So hopefully that'll be out. I've got um, another collection of stories that i've been working on and some other ideas for some slightly wacky and off the wall novels which hopefully will get the go ahead at some point so yeah lots going on lots going on nothing uh, nothing i can go into too much detail about now what about you know because a lot of people know you in the kind of uk scene but how how's your influences for this say the us market is is things over there looking good for you um i honestly don't know um about the US market, uh, there's going the recollections being launched over there um, by Solaris. At the same time, it's being launched in the UK, so hopefully that will raise my profile. I've not particularly appeared in in any of the big three sci-fi magazines in the states, so um, I don't I don't know that I have as high a profile over there as I do over here. But hopefully, the recollection recollection is going to change all that. Well, Gareth, honestly, good luck with everything. Do you know what I mean? Like, see. It. You've got a lot of work ahead of you, and like you're doing lots of jobs at the moment. Let's just hope you know this recollection can kind of stir some, you know, some movement there and bestseller list. That would be fantastic. Uh, that would be good. Yeah, Gareth, thank you so much for coming on Starship Sofa. Thank you very much. My pleasure. <laughs> there you go. Do a link on. I put a link on to. Gareth, and to the book as well, so do pop over there. And next up, we have a little promo by Journey Into. Journey Into is the creation of Marshall Lith- 
Marshall has actually he's narrated four starships over as well, and he's gee, great news. He's set out on you know taking on his new podcast, and he's got one. Larry managed to bag Larry Santuru in and narrate a story as well. So Marshall, you're doing rather well. It's bloody hard to tie Larry down. So thank you very much. Nicking me bloody narrators. <laughs> I don't mind one bit, honestly. So do listen out for this podcast and do pop over there and subscribe to Journey Into. Fantastic little show. Thank you very much, Marshall. The unknown. Mystery. Space. Science. Have fun. Adventure. Suspense. Fantasy. Nameless, unreasoning, unjustified terror. The Journey Into podcast features replays of old radio shows like X-1, Escape, Suspense, Lights Out, and many more. Also, about once a month, I'm sure I'm trying, it will also feature full cast readings of new and classic stories, as well as new flash fiction. Think of it as a variety pack of audio fiction. It's a happy meal for your ears, or if you don't like happy meals... It's like the toy chest you used to dive into when you went to the dentist as a kid. Come check it out at journeyintopodcast.blogspot.com So, come with me and let's journey into space. Or into adventure. Or into fear. Or into mystery. So that is it. Like I say, there's a link on to Journey Into. Go over there and pop over and, you know, sign up and listen on there. Thank you very much. That is Starship Sova, show 201. Eh? Way to go. Any, any news, anything like that, just drop us an email if you want to get in touch with us. Starshipsover at gmail.com. If you've got any ideas for anything, do you know what I mean? If you want to come on and, and present a little bit, if you've got a fact article, even just a one off fact article, if you've got something special that you want to kind of tell everyone, Give us, drop us a line, starshipsover at gmail.com. We are waiting for you. Don't forget, if you want to donate anything like that, you know, that's that's how this good ship survives. Donations come from the website. And a big thank you to Brian with his artwork as well. Brian, what can I say? Until next week, just like to say, good night from me. survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment? Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of Starship Sofa, a vacuation procedure initiated. Shuttle set for launch. Airlock will be opened in three, two, one.